I think he did move on totally from the way he was brought up. In fact, I think he rather spoiled the boys because that often happens. If you've had a very, very strict upbringing yourself, you want to give your children everything that you didn't have. Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Right Roll Podcast with me, Emmy. And me, Emily. Is she still on holiday? How dare she? Andrea is still in the Caribbean, but we are holding the fort, Emily, because it has been a very interesting week. It has been a really interesting week, Emmy. We're going to speak to royal author Ingrid Seward about her fascinating new book, My Mother and I. It's a deep dive into the King's relationship with the late Queen Elizabeth II and a celebration of the power of family. Amazing. But... I want to talk to you first because it has been a very interesting week for the Sussexes and I want to hear all about it. Yeah, I think we could call it a right royal rebrand or a right non-royal rebrand, in fact. Well, exactly. So we heard this week that Prince Harry and Meghan have rebranded. Can you tell me all about it, please? Me yeah. and the listeners. So they haven't rebranded themselves, per se, but they launched a new website called Sussex.com. And this effectively replaces the Archwell.com website that they've been using for the last couple of years. And the way it was described to me is that it's a kind of one-stop shop for their various different pillars of work, if you like. So it encompasses Archwell Productions, their media production company, encompasses Archwell Foundation, their charitable foundation. But it's also going to be a platform for other updates. And I think this is really interesting because it is a bit of a signal that they are about to start doing more different things. So we know that they're at the Invictus Games this week. By the time this goes out, they'll have been in Canada for three days. We're expecting... They're travelling there at the moment, aren't they, whilst whilst we're recording. On Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day Happy Valentine's Day, Emmy. So I imagine we will see some loved up images of them later. Sure. Yes. I mean, they're very, I mean, as we all know, lovely and affectionate in public. A very tactile couple. So we've got the Invictus Games. It's a one year to go event. They're going to be in Whistler and in Vancouver. And if you remember from David Wiseman, our podcast guest from last season. How could I forget? It's the first uh, winter sports edition of the Invictus Games happening in a year's time from now. And this is the sort of hundred days to go event to publicize it but also to meet competitors who are in training for next year's tournament so they're going to be really visible and I think it's really interesting they've launched this website now at a time when they will probably want to share further updates about what they're doing that are sort of outside the remit of their other two organisations. So I was going to say, this isn't a sign that they're stepping away from the Archwell Not at all, no. no. But it's the sort of umbrella website, I think, if you like. What's really interesting about it is that they have still refused to join any social media networks. Mm. But I think this is an actually quite a smart way of doing it on their own terms. So I would expect them to share pictures, updates, things that they might previously have put on social media that they can't, quite frankly, because they are campaigning against online harm. Social media plays a big part in that. And I think it would look a bit hypocritical if they suddenly jump back on Instagram, Twitter and everything else. So they're using this site as their own sort of personal Instagram, basically. Oh, yeah. Look, well, I think we'll have to wait and see. But Mm. I think that we'll certainly see more personal updates from them on it. I want to ask about the name, Sussexes.com, because... Sussex.com. Sussex.com, excuse me. Because it's their royal title. It is their royal title. Controversial choice, perhaps? Well, it's a really interesting one. It has sparked a bit of controversy this week. I mean, it is their title. The titles remain with them. Nothing's changed from that point of view. And 
When people talk about them as a couple, they refer to them as Harry and Meghan. But I think we all know exactly who the Sussexes are yeah. whenever they're mentioned. What has been a bit controversial about the new site is that it links to Sussex Royal. Now, to take you back to 2020, when they announced their seismic departure from the royal family, they did so by simultaneously launching a website called Sussex Royal, in which they kind of laid out their manifesto for moving abroad, pursuing financial independence. They kind of presented a done deal about the way they wanted things to pan out. Mm. And as we now know, the Queen didn't approve of this half-in, half-out plan. And so that site kind of lay dormant for several years. Interestingly, they have linked to it on the new site and... That's bringing in what they did do during Meghan's brief time in the royal family and looking back at the work that they did while still within the fold, if you like. It's not live as a, you know, they're not going to be updating on that, but you can access it via the website. And I think that's a really interesting move. Why are they doing this now? That is a really good question. I think that it's primarily because they have a lot of things in the pipeline. Mm. But my understanding is there's been a bit of a restructuring within the organisation. They have set up the office of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex rather than just Archwell, which was the sort of the main body that was responding to media on their behalf, etc. So this comprises their communication staff, but also personal staff, their chiefs of staff. And I think that the idea is that they've had some kind of reorganisation behind the scenes and that they now have a plan, uh, I'm told, to uh, move on to the next chapter. So this is, I think, about a hub, if you like, for their work going forward. Amazing. Can I just ask then, address the elephant in the room, it seems to me odd timing so soon after uh, the news of the king's diagnosis. Like, is there some element there, would you say, or is this pure speculation that it's like trying to realign themselves with the royal family a little bit? Because they work so hard to, I feel like, get a- away from that and establish their own identity. And this kind of feels like they're re entering their sort of royal identities, if that makes sense. Yeah. Was this always planned? Tell me about the timing of it because it feels odd. I get where you're coming from, absolutely. Look, I'm not an expert in um, web design. It won't surprise <laughs> you to hear. But I do think these things probably take quite a long time, you know, a lot of planning. And I don't think they would have just uh, rustled this up in the last sort of fortnight. Yeah. I'm sure that this kind of reorganisation that's going on behind the scenes has been going on for some time. And they will have had these events in the planning for quite... So I think that the timing is probably coincidental. But what is interesting, as you say, is that link back to the royal family. You know, just in the design itself, they have their coat of arms. It's actually Meghan's coat of arms, which is their two coats of arms, which were, I think the word is impaled, which sounds pretty painful, but it's a combining of their coats of arms into sort of a joint one, which right. is the one she received on becoming the Duchess of Sussex. And again, just linking back to Sussex Royal and the work they did beforehand is quite interesting in itself, given all the talk we've heard about them wanting to break away. So perhaps there is a recognition there that they want to be seen to be supporting the monarchy more. I don't know. It's, I mean, we could have an absolute field day on this. And, you know, yeah. some of the newspapers have, you know, really gone to town on it. I was going to say, if we're looking at it in a positive manner, maybe hinting 
at a reconciliation there or moving towards a reconciliation at well, the very least? Yeah, look, I think there's a very long way to go before that happens. And I'd be interested to know how it's gone down within the family itself. I think we certainly know that it's raised eyebrows among people at, at the palace. And there's Has been a it? lot of talk about how they, you know, they weren't consulted. Mm. Look, I don't necessarily see why they would consult the palace. You know, know, they do have these titles for better or worse, uh, whatever you think of that. So they can refer to themselves by those titles. I do feel like Harry and Meghan, whatever they do, are going to attract either adoration or criticism, depending on which camp you're in. It is interesting. And then the other th- development we've had this week is that Meghan's Archetypes podcast has been signed by a new podcast production company. Now, what do you make of that? We've got a new rival. Well, I'm glad that they found somewhere else to go because Spotify's head of podcast innovation and monetization were the ones that called them grifters a while ago about archetypes. But this is a whole new platform for season two. That's correct. Imagine that the first season will be available as well. But the company is called, and I haven't had time to check the pronunciation of this, uh, Lemonada or Lemonada, but it's a potato, female. Potato, potato. <laughs> yeah, you know, you say Lemonada, I say Lemonada. It's a female-run podcast network and it's interesting that she's chosen this. It's very much in line with her feminist approach to life. In mm. fact, it's one of the first words she used to describe herself in her biography on Sussex.com and she's talking about how delighted she is to join this family So it seems like a smaller organisation. Heard that before. (laughs) Emmy. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Okay. You you threw it up. I had to hit it. It it was fun timing. It was fun timing. So they've obviously got a lot of irons in the fire at the minute. So there's a new way of publicising this. I'm fascinated to see where she's going to go with archetypes now. Because, you know, it did have a good following. It was not a favourite with all the critics, but who are going to be her guests? I mean, what's your prediction for this? I mean, last time, obviously, she had some really famous faces take part in the Archetypes podcast. So I guess the question is, what are their connections like in the realm of Hollywood nowadays? Or will she be taking more of a line with speaking to people at charities? They're working with a little more on that side of things. Yeah. So, I mean, or will it be a bit of a combination? What do you think? I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to find out. And, mm. you know, we had recently from someone very senior at Netflix that they do have a lot of ideas and development there. So oh, great. I get the feeling that this could be quite a big year for them. But as you say, it does coincide with this really tough time back at home for the British royal family when, you know, senior royals are out of action. And it goes without saying that were they still part of the family, they would be able to have a big impact right now. Sure. I mean, remind me when Spare came out. It feels like uh, only a week ago, but it was actually over a year ago now. I mean, it was in January last year. Well, this is what I wanted to ask. Do you think there's something that that they... Spare came out as a memoir, very explosive reaction to it. I mean, we're still talking about it now. I don't think it's ever going to, you know, it'll always be there. Mm. Um, But do you think the fact that they're coming back now and it looks like... They're going to have a very busy year with having more of a brand, being more outspoken. Do you think they just took a long, long, quiet break off the back of Spare, waited until the dust settled, and now it's like, okay, 2024, we're going to have this sort of public persona again that we've shied away from? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, this is sort of about a new chapter for them, really. Mm. And 
they have everything in place now to really get to work in a way that perhaps weren't able to before because there was all this focus on the family fallout. Yeah, Harry had obviously a lot of stuff that he wanted to get off his chest for right or wrong and they needed to let some water under the bridge after that because that you know their reputations took a knock as yeah, a result of that. Did. There was the incident in New York with the car chase. There was also Harry's, you know, ongoing legal battles in the which you know aren't over by any stretch in this country, but that's very much been the focus on them for the last couple of years and I think they really do need something to sort of redefine what they're doing and and move on from that. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I do get the distinct impression that they want the chapter of their lives as royals to be closed and that's what Spare and their documentary was. It was like, we are no longer talking about this element of our lives. We've discussed it and that's it. Which I guess for me makes it all the stranger that they've gone with their Sussex title for the website. But I feel like I'm retreading old ground here. But do you, What, do you what would you what call I mean? it? Well, if I was them, H&M.com. <laughs> no, Someone's already got that one. <laughs> that's already been owned. I think that's the only reason they didn't, you know. I don't know why they wouldn't double down with Archwell. Well, the thing is, Archwell has these two strands already. But what do you have, like an Archwell updates or something? I think they needed something else. Yeah, that sounds a bit like a fan site, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. Harryandmeghan.com. Do you know what? Someone very smart probably bought that domain very early on and they they maybe can't access it. I guess it has taken them a long time to get to this point. Like you said, they had the Sussex Royal that became defunct. That's the word, isn't it? That's right. Then they Uh, set up Archwell off the back of that. Yeah, that didn't quite work out. Archetypes didn't quite work out. Obviously, that's been looped back around, which is great. Megan had a Netflix show in development, Pearl, that didn't end up working out. So it has taken them a minute to, I guess, work out who they are and what they're doing. So do you think this is like a new rebranded this is us and we are sticking to this i think so and you know just looking at the announcements we've had about the archetypes update for example it reminds me a lot more of how they communicated before spare and before the netflix documentary the harry megan documentary about themselves yeah so i think it is a step back into their mission if you like rather than focusing on the personal stuff and i think that quite frankly is a very good move because Mm. people do feel like they've heard a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And some people and a lot of people in this country certainly have felt quite aggrieved by it, certainly because of the timing, because of the, the late Queen's death. And now, obviously, with the King's illness, people don't want to see families falling out like that. Absolutely. And it's, you know, we've talked about this before, but obviously it's a difficult situation for them. They're sort of the damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. But they've got to find a way forward somehow. And it seems that this is a very constructive way of doing that. 100%. And timing it around an Invictus event is a no-brainer for me because it's one of the best things Prince Harry's ever done. Exactly. It really, and it's it's got support. Absolutely. It garners worldwide respect. It's a really inspiring event and it's putting the focus on other people and I think that's something they're able to do really, really well and always have been able to do and and it should absolutely be be one of their main focuses going forward. Absolutely. Well, we'll see what 2024 has in store, whether any of our predictions come to pass. Do we need a right wall uh, rebrand? No, our podcast is very great. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Shall we get on to our guest this week? Shall we? We're speaking to the wonderful Ingrid Seward, who you may remember from our last season. She has a fantastic new book called My Mother and I, and this takes you behind the scenes of the now king's upbringing in a fascinating way. It's 
all about his relationship with the late Queen Elizabeth II from his birth through early childhood into later life. But it also looks at the way royal children and members of the royal family have been brought up and their relationships with their parents, which is, I think, really helpful for insight into what's going on in the family dynamic at the moment. Welcome back to Right Royal Podcast, Ingrid. We are delighted to have you with us again. And congratulations on your new book, My Mother and I, which I have read and thoroughly enjoyed. What made you want to write it? Well, I love the intrigue about how members of the royal family are brought up. Because I wrote a book years ago called Royal Children. Mm -hmm. What I would really love to do is interview all the old royal nannies. I I mean, most of them probably aren't around anymore, but they would never, ever talk. Yeah. But I'm intrigued by how these sort of working class women brought up these royal children and really basically in those days were their mother. Mm, mm. Prince Charles has said frequently, not recently, but in the past that, you know, he his mother never hugged him. When he came home from school, he went up to the nursery and it was Mabel Anderson, his nanny, that was really more of a mother to him. And I thought this was a really interesting relationship because when the Queen had Prince Charles. Charles was born in 48 Mm -hmm. and the Queen was only 21 or 22. And when she became Queen, Charles was four years old. So she only really had him until he was four. Mm. And then basically the, the children were taken away from her. And she saw them in the morning and again in the evening. And that was it. Was that quite classic for like wealthy families at that time? Or was it a very unique situation for the royal family? No, it wasn't unique at all. All aristocratic families hardly ever saw their children. Yeah. I mean, they never took children on holiday because it was, you know, before the age of cheap travel. Mm-hmm. And nanny was mummy. So it wasn't considered strange. But I just intrigued by the relationship with the nanny and the mother. Mm. And that dynamic then that, follows. And what I love is that you go right back as well to Queen Elizabeth II's upbringing as well. And hers was similar, wasn't it? That she had her nannies looking after her. Her mother, you say, if she was in London, might pop in and see her before bedtime. But it was very, very formal and just really different from the way we see, for example, uh, Prince William and Prince Harry bringing up their children now, which is very much more hands-on. We're going to go into a lot more detail about that. But I think what really comes across in your book is how Charles's upbringing has shaped him and how it has made him the person he is. I think, you know, those long absences by the late Queen the Duke of Edinburgh when he was little, you know, through no fault of their own, she was away doing her duty, meant that he formed these attachments with, as you say, Mabel Anderson, other people. But he relied on people like the Queen Mother, didn't he, for that affection and in fact, went on to talk about it in the authorised biography by David Imbleby about his parents not having been affectionate to him. So that was pretty controversial at the time, wasn't it? It was very it? controversial at the time. And when that book came out, I think that the Queen and Prince Philip were on a tour of Russia, which mm. was really an important tour. And um, they were very upset. Mm-hmm. They were very upset about the way Charles described their parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was distant. Mm-hmm. I mean, even people that were on side with the Queen and Prince Philip said that they never hugged their children in public. Mm-hmm. And it was very distant because the Queen was not brought up to be an emotional person. Mm-hmm. I mean, inside she 
I'm sure she was very emotional, but she never showed it. And that's how she was brought up. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been almost impossible for her to change. I think as she became in her dotage, mm-hmm. you could see that she was more emotional. But I think certainly as a young woman, she tucked it all away. And she was very, very shy. And I think she saw in Charles perhaps some of the characteristics which she didn't really like in herself, like her intense shyness. Charles was very shy. Anne was like a sort of hooligan. (laughs) That doesn't surprise me. She would run into a room and Charles would literally uh, stand there and hang on to Nanny's leg. And Charles and Anne used to fight like uh, cats and dogs. They really did. And once upon a time, they had a fight over a bag of mushrooms. They'd been collecting mushrooms. I think this must have been in Scotland. Mm. And then they started by fighting about who was going to present them to mummy. So much so that the sort of bag burst. And they were screaming and shouting and thumping each other. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The queen appeared and gave them both a good slap. That's another thing that people did in those days, which they don't do anymore. Mm. They do administer a certain amount of discipline to children, and, and it certainly was not frowned on. No, different times altogether. I think what comes across in your book is that context as well, you know, that it's easy to judge this with hindsight and say, God, what an awful way to bring up a child. But if that was the done thing, then it's it doesn't justify some of the things that happened but it does explain it to an extent absolutely yeah and I thought as well it was really interesting the letters from the queen from when Charles was from an early age as well because they're full of enormous affection for him and giving lots of information about what he's like as a baby so that affection is there it's just not absolutely these letters were absolutely charming I think it was one to the midwife Sister Rowie, she was called. The Queen wrote describing Charles. Mm. And you thought, this is so sweet and Mm. lovely. And yet she doesn't physically ever show you how much she loved him. Yeah. What is lovely, though, is that by the conclusion of your book, you make it clear that mother and son had sort of developed a bond that had perhaps been missing earlier in their relationship. So there was a sort of happy ending to it, if you like. They did come closer together in later years. What do you think happened to change their relationship? I think that the Queen was very proud of her son. Mm-hmm. They were very distant, and I think the whole Diana business pushed them even further apart. And then Charles really started screaming at his mother, you know, because she wouldn't understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I say screaming, I mean he used to ha- sort of have rows with her and hang up the telephone on her. Mm-hmm. That was the low point of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And Prince Philip also thought, what are we going to do? You know, is this man ever going to make a monarch mm-hmm. if he can't just deal with one woman? But after that, I think that the Queen came to the conclusion that she should have acted sooner and, and maybe helped a bit sooner with that situation. But She'd never had to deal with any moral confrontation in her life. You sort of really emphasise how her way of dealing with things was to back away and not confront things and just hope that they'd work themselves out. Yes, I think that all the royal family are a bit like that. I mean, certainly the Queen Mother was like that. Mm. Anything went wrong, she retired to bed. 
Oh, God, we all feel like that. Though, oh, don't yeah, we? We'd all like to do that. But she just never, if something was too unpleasant, she just didn't deal with it. Right. But the, the late queen had the dog mechanism, right, which I thought was hilarious. That's a brilliant way of dealing with things, get the dogs in and fuss over the dogs instead of having to... Yeah, can you tell our listeners what that's yeah, all about? Yeah, explain, explain the dog mechanism. So, uh, <laughs> Prince Philip called it Lilibet's dog mechanism, but they used to have lunches called Meet the People Lunches at Buckingham Palace, and there were probably a dozen people there, all very prominent in their own sphere. But sometimes it was a bit tricky getting the conversation going. And if there was a real lull, the Queen would call in the dogs. And they were always under the table, you know, being fed biscuits and things. And I think there was one particular, it was a surgeon who'd been in either Beirut or Afghanistan, and he was very traumatised. And the Queen saw that he suddenly sort of froze in their conversation. So she called in the dogs and then they talked about dogs. And then he was fine again. Mm-hmm. So it's a way of just breaking the ice, It's I a suppose. way of breaking the ice. And, and, and it's, of course, it does break the ice beautifully. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they're these huge overfed corgis sort of waddling in, getting yet more food. And there used to be a footman at Buckingham Palace who wanted to curry favour with the Queen. So in the long tails of the coat, he used to put dog biscuits Amazing. So the dogs just loved him. And they were <laughs> jumping up at him. So he became the Queen's favourite. Because she thought he just had a she natural ability. She thought she ability. just had a knack with dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to this this idea of the sort of generational trauma that Prince Harry's talked about. And obviously we all are very influenced by the way our own parents brought us up. Something Kate's talked about as well in her yeah. early childhood work. I'm really interested in how you think the way that the now King was brought up, impacted the way he brought up his own sons. Harry's obviously been quite critical of some aspects of his father's parenting, you know, talking about the fact that he didn't hug him after telling him that Diana had died, which is the very, very moving part of spare. We also hear that Charles and William are now closer than perhaps ever before. I mean, how do you think he moved on from that? Do you think he moved on from the way he was brought up? Did he really adapt? Yes, I think he did move on totally from the way he was brought up. In fact, I think he rather spoiled the boys. Right, okay. Because that often happens. If you've had a very, very strict upbringing yourself, you want to give your children everything that you didn't have. Yeah. And in the early years of their upbringing, there was all this problem with Diana. So, And she wanted to really hurt Charles. And the way she could hurt him and her really big weapon was the children, mm. which must be very tempting for any woman in the throes of an unhappy marriage. But I think women try not to do this. But, mm. So if Charles wanted to take them to see the polo, she'd whisk them off to Tetbury to go shopping. Mm-hmm. And if Charles wanted to have lunch in the garden... She'd say, no, 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 we want to watch this television programme. So everything he planned for the boys, she counter counteracted it. So and, and certainly on sort of weekends, like Charles used to host a lot of shooting weekends and the boys loved it. Mm-hmm. Diana used to call them her killer whales <laughs> because they love shooting, you know, it, it, rough shooting. They loved going up to Balmoral and having a gun in their hand and sitting with the gillies eating sandwiches. And at the last minute, she used to cancel these trips. So it was really difficult. And I think as a result, Charles rather overcompensated with the boys, mm-hmm. his darling boys. Mm-hmm. And I think that does actually come through in Harry's book. Yeah. Although what Harry says about when Charles broke the news of Diana's death, obviously none of us were there, so we can't say. But I think that it's quite possible because he would have been in shock himself. Of course. yeah, Probably felt so shocked. He, I don't know. 
It's mm -hmm. not, a woman wouldn't do that, but maybe for a man it's different. But I think that Charles' upbringing, well, Diana complained about it a lot. Mm. So what did there she must, say? She said she never wanted to have any of her children brought up in the way that they were never hugged by their mother. And I'm going to give them plenty and plenty of hugs. Mm -hmm. But Charles also thought that he, he wasn't going to put on a show for the cameras. And Diana was all about putting on a show for cameras. And there's a famous picture, which I'm sure you remember, of her on board Britannia with her arms outstretched. And I think it's with the boys running into her arms. Well, Charles was only just literally standing there, but the cameras were focused on Diana. What happened was, you know, once they'd hugged mummy, he sort of ushered them away from the cameras and he gave them a big hug. But he refused to put on an act of parenthood for cameras. Right, yeah. right, so just a very different approach. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some parallels there, I think, between his parenting style and the Queen's, though. Prince Harry had that story about how he would go upstairs and he'd find notes from Charles complimenting him. Hmm. But then he'd be like, I was just downstairs with him, but he couldn't say it in front of other people. So there's still that sort of keeping your affection very private. And I, I well, guess... Well, you have to remember, but in those days, no one sort of said, I love you. Mm. There was no hugging. Yeah. It was such a different time, and that was his time. And there was no public display of affection. Yeah. Especially with children. There was, of course, in, in private, but it was very unusual to see children being hugged in public. It's really different times, isn't it? If well, because William and Harry are really undoing all of that because yes. they are quite... Well, Diana openly. did it. She undid it. She yeah. was always hugging them. She was incredibly tactile. Mm -hmm. And she was the first tactile member of the royal family, really, that was prepared to be photographed like that. That's and I don't right. think Whether it was it an was act. A... I think she was just really a warm person. Yeah. One thing I think is really interesting is seeing the king now because we're told he does have a very good relationship with, certainly with his UK-based grandchildren. And we have those amazing photographs of him at the Platinum Jubilee with Louis on his lap. What do you make of that? What do you make of Charles as a grandfather? Well, I think as a grandfather, Charles has been able to relax mm. and enjoy his grandchildren. That wonderful picture with Louis sort of tweaking his nose, which was an, an official sort of picture. He's just sort of relaxed into it. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a long, long time since he was brought up in such a formal way. And I think that he, he just enjoys them mm -hmm. and they make him laugh. And it's a different kind of relationship, isn't it? You're a grandmother having a child who you can spend amazing time with, but not have like 24 hour <laughs> responsibility for. I know my parents always say that about my kids is such a pleasure. Yeah, you can spend quality time with them. Yeah. And, and Charles, you know, he used to love teaching William and Harry things. Mm -hmm. I mean, Harry was very close to his father. I talk about that in the mm. book. And really, William was much closer to Diana. Mm -hmm. And Harry used to, you know, toddle off with Charles into the garden and Charles would explain that plants have feelings too. And he'd take Harry off with him when he was doing occasional military things and Harry would just love the military, just was crazy about the military. Mm. Um, it, you know, when he was a tiny little chap. And he was also a very adept and naturally good rider. Right. Princess Anne once said, you know, he could go far with his riding. He was very, very good. Do you think Charles maybe feels like he's missing out on Lilibet and Archie in this? You know, because obviously it's lovely that he's really close to the grandchildren now and it is a really special relationship, mm. as you were saying, Emily. Yeah. But then he's got two grandchildren. It's like he's very close to his son and they're just not, yeah, not really well, available. They are li quite literally, you know, oceans apart. Yeah. So. 
I don't think he's got time to feel much about it. I mean, obviously, I would imagine that Harry and Meghan will be invited to go to Balmoral because that's really the only time that Charles or the, all the royal family ever get together. Mm. People imagine they're sort of in each other's pockets, but they often, in the days when they all lived in Buckingham Palace, they often didn't see each other at all. Yeah, And the Queen had to make an appointment to see her children. Mm which was to them perfectly normal. So I don't think Charles sort of sits worrying I'm not seeing them. He probably thinks I'm going to see them come the summer. Unless, of course, they decide not to come, then that's up to them. There's not much I can do about it. I don't think he sits there saying, I really wish I could see them because I don't think he's really got time to feel like that. He's got Camilla's grandchildren as well, doesn't he? He has, yeah. And we're told that they do and he reads Harry Potter to them and he puts on all the voices. And I kind of love this side to him that we're hearing about, you know, whether it's planting trees with... Prince George at Highgrove. Actually, going back to that, I wanted to ask because what's interesting in your book as well is that you talk about how well prepared the late Queen was for her role by her own father. So she would sit and go through his red boxes with him. Obviously, she acceded to the throne younger than she was expecting to, but her own father hadn't been prepared at all. But, you know, the role was forced on him by the abdication. Do you think that the Queen and Charles spent a lot of time together going over matter. I mean, they had a very long time too, didn't they? It was the longest apprenticeship for a monarch in history. And also, do you think that's the kind of thing that he has an eye on in his relationships with William and George? The Queen was certainly prepared for the role by her father as mm. much as he could. Mm. But when she did also say that when she came into the role suddenly, you know, they never thought their father was going to die. No, of course. She was unprepared. She'd been prepared, but she was sort of mentally unprepared. Mm. So she just did everything as her father done it right. and employed the same people. The court was very much the same for a bit. Mm. I mean, Prince Philip was the one that came and, you know, changed things for the better and modernised everything. And I think in, in Charles's case, he is probably the best in, informed monarch that we've ever had because yeah. he's had so long mm. to learn and he's been witnessing those red boxes for years and years because mm. all his friends used to complain, oh, you never never see whales, they used to call it whales without his boxes, right. his red boxes. And I thought, what is that? oh, yes, the they're the government papers. Yes, he, he's been seeing those for a long time. Mm -hmm. And William will be doing likewise And I now. would imagine that William would be actually doing the same. Especially given the current situation. Uh, especially in the current situation. And I think, well, George looks a very serious 10-year-old. Mm -hmm. So I would think that, you know, that, that he's also been prepared. But what was interesting with William and Harry was that Diana actually kept the boys away from the Queen. Right. And she was really worried. And she was really worried about their mental state as well. You know, listening to two warring parents screaming and shouting at each other. It really was screaming and shouting. But actually, they were sort of whisked away by detectives or nannies. They didn't really witness that much. But the Queen didn't know that. And she was really worried. Mm. So when William went to Eton... That's when she started having the teas. And he would just come across the river on a Sunday and go and have tea with her at Windsor Castle. And then she talked to him quite seriously. So William, I mean, I suppose he would have been sort of 12, mm -hmm. 13 probably. So he was actually trained in a way by his grandmother. I think one of the abiding memories I have from the Platinum Jubilee actually is that last appearance they all made on the balcony and Prince George standing alongside the Queen and just looking slightly in awe of her. 
And I just thought that was so lovely that he'll have that memory when eventually he he becomes king. It's funny to think of little George almost getting lessons on how to do his job one well, day. I, I mean, do you I think that's the that's I don't in the works? know if he yeah. is. Yeah. Because they're very much more private now. Sure. Diana, for a start, told us everything that was going on. Yeah. So we got a huge amount of information when William and Harry were young. I mean, she told us everything about Well, I think them. this is a really important point to make, Ingrid, because so much is said about how exposed they were as children and how much she was, and, you know, rightly so, hounded by paparazzi, etc. But she was also very clever in her relationships with the media, wasn't she? And she did seek people out to get certain messages across. Oh, she certainly did. I mean, Diana was very, very close to certain members of the media and she would give lunches. She had a lot of journalist friends, but she would never let you know who she was friends with. I think I do remember saying something, oh, do you ever see so-and-so? And she said, oh, no, I don't see him anymore. But you knew perfectly well she did. Right. So yeah. she was really clever at making you feel very special. I'm with you. Okay. She was an absolute brilliant manipulator of people. Right. And I don't mean that nastily. No. A sort of super charming manipulator. Mm -hmm. She sort of wafts in and she's got this amazing little girly voice. Mm. And that's what really hits you much more than when you met her on royal tours and things, that when you're on a one-to-one -one with her. Mm. And she's funny. And we did laugh an awful lot about various people <laughs> and various things. I think she thought I was very much in Charles's camp. In those days, it was the War of the Waleses, even though that they were separated. But yeah. a bit like now, there's a, a degree of, you know, Waleses versus Sussexes, which, you know, unfortunate as it is, they tend to have their camps, don't they? There was the Diana admirers, and then there was the Prince Charles admirers. Or, you know, the actually people that stood behind the monarchy and everything it stood for. And there was the people that just, you know, Diana still has this extraordinary effect. Mm -hmm. Sort of like history repeating itself a little bit, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, 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 to be honest with you, Ingrid, talking about Charles as a child being very shy and then Anne being a bit of a hooligan, that kind of reminded me of George and Charlotte. Not that Charlotte's a hooligan, but I feel like Charlotte has a real confidence that maybe George is a slightly more withdrawn one. I mean, do you guys yes, get that I impression? Yes, I think he is, because you remember when we first saw him, I can't remember, you might have been there, Emily, it was in Canada or somewhere, and he got on a little pony, but he was really nervous about getting on this little pony. And yet we've seen that Charlotte is just, you know, brave as a lion. Mm, yeah. And, and she's got her own little pony, but you can see that she's the brave girl. Mm. And he's more reticent. It's that so dynamic I presume again, isn't he's it? probably yeah. more like his grandfather. That's well, interesting. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what they bond over, George and the King. The garden, surely. The garden, yes, yeah. and sort of... Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and reading, probably. You know, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Charles obviously reads to him. And like you said, puts on all the great voices and things. Because our king is just brilliant actor. Yeah. That's always been his release. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because you talk about the shyness, but then he does also have this sort of showmanship. Certainly that the late queen didn't have. You know, he's shy anymore. I think the late queen did have it. But in private. But we only got to see it when she was much, much older. Yeah, in Paddington. Yes, and also she used to make these wonderful acerbic one-liners, mm. which I absolutely love. I love some of the anecdotes about the Queen in your book. It seems like she sort of delighted in anything going a little bit wrong. For instance, when her Land Rover, would it, did it break down and then she couldn't get hold of the palace because yes, I think it was ex-directory? Her, her Land Rover broke down. And they, there's a lot of stories like this, but this yeah. is a real genuine one. Yeah. And they didn't not recognise her. Mm. She went into one of the estate cottages and said, could I use the telephone? Of course they knew who 
she was. Mm. But then she didn't know the number of Balmoral. She forgot the number. <laughs> Hilarious. Well, she wouldn't know it, though, no, would she? No, because she, why would she no, call why us? why would she know? And then she couldn't get hold of them because it's not no, in the, she, it's not in the directory. They, they, well, if your majesty, why don't we call directory inquiries? But directory inquiries wouldn't give her the number. It's brilliant. But you could tell from your book that she really relished those kind of moments oh, and telling those stories. Oh, she had fun with telling that story. And then the other one, when she came down wearing, this was during the Ascot week, yeah. mm. when she and the Duchess of Sutherland were wearing the same dress, but actually her dressmaker told me this story, a man called Ian Thomas, who's sadly no longer with us. And he'd made this brown dress for the Queen, but it wasn't an exclusive. And he said to the Queen, this is not an exclusive. There is a possibility that you might see someone else wearing it. She said, oh, I shall look forward to that. Give me <laughs> something to do when I'm in a crowd. See if I can spot another dress. Oh, brilliant. Uh, but I don't think she expected to and see it behold, in yeah. her own home. <laughs> so, so, of course, so, you know, she had to go and change. But what was the comment she made? She said, and guess who had to go and change? <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. But it, I it, love it does that, paint yes. a different picture of her from behind the scenes than so maybe she was we always know. very, very witty and funny. Yeah, mm. it's just but very we, chatty and personable. But I don't think the general public got to see that until very much later. Mm. I think they did see it then. Yeah. I just think she's always been really funny. She's always been a terrific mimic. Mm. But uh, we all know that now, but we didn't straight away. Yeah. Obviously, at the moment, it's a very difficult time for the king. He's received this cancer diagnosis. And I saw there was quite a stir online because it was suggested that he wouldn't go for the classic cancer treatments. And I actually wanted to ask you about that because in your book, you write about how he's a huge supporter of homeopathy. Mm -hmm. Well, and something that had been for generations yeah, in the and, family, which I hadn't realised. And alternative medicines. Mm. So what's your thoughts on that? Do you think he will be taking an, an alternative route to his recovery here? or I actually think he probably won't right. be taking an alternative route because I think he wants to get well as quickly as he can. With homeopathy, it's a slower journey. I'm sure that also that Camilla will be saying... We've got to get you right. You're not a spring chicken anymore. Let's just go down the traditional tried and tested route. Yeah. I mean, I might be wrong, but that's what I feel. I think he will do because he wants to get better. And then I think he'll talk about it. I, I hope, hope so. so. Yeah, because yeah. I think he's already done wonders, hasn't he, sharing even the fact that he was having the um, prostate procedure. We saw a huge increase in men seeking treatment for symptoms. I mean, he's a really very private person. Mm. He's always been very charming, up to a point, reasonable conversationalist. I know he says a lot of the same things, but he's a very private person. Just going back to his treatment as well, and the fact that, from your book, he clearly hates being ill. The fact that if he had like a little bit of a cold, he'd be sat in an oxygen tent. So, presumably, right now, this illness is, he's probably finding it incredibly frustrating I would think so. I mean, they all the royal family have an absolute horror of colds and they do keep well away from each other if they have an infection for obvious reasons. Mm. So I think that's why I think he will be going down the traditional route. I mean, I don't know if, if he's having radiotherapy or chemotherapy, maybe mm. neither, but I think it will be a traditional route and I think he will be dealing with it very well because because of Camilla, actually. Mm. She's there for him. She's a real And he can share it with isn't her. she? Yeah. Tell us about the oxygen tent, though, because I was I was, I was say, intrigued some by that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Charles has always suffered from sinusitis mm -hmm. really badly, hence the snoring story when he was at Gordonson, when his fellow dormitory mates recorded him snoring, mm. because he did snore very badly. So 
I think that if he has uh, sleep apnea mm-hmm. or very bad sinus, he sleeps in an oxygen tent. And I don't know how big it is or if it's just a facial mask, but I think it is actually a tent. That's how it was described to me. You know, it's a wonderful thing to do. Wouldn't we all like to be able to do that occasionally? There are a few other details about illness, and again, just topical at the moment, about the children being separated when there was a measles outbreak. And that was so much more serious in those days, wasn't it? But all these things that royal parents had to consider... In those yes, days. I mean, you see, when children are ill, the one person they want is mummy. Mm. Yeah. And the one person, and Charles was frequently quite ill, mm. you know, in the way that little kids are. Of course, yeah. The one thing that he probably did want was mummy, but he did have nanny. Yeah. And nanny, nanny Lightbody, this was, hated Prince Philip, and Prince Philip hated nanny Lightbody. And he used to pick up Charles and throw him in the Buckingham Palace swimming pool to learn to swim. And nanny said, oh my goodness, his sinuses, his sinuses, and... So Nanny Lightbody's tenure at the palace was not as long as it could have been. Oh, dear. Oh, because of Philip? Yes. <gasps> oh, no. There's a story that goes saying it's about the Queen and the cooking and everything, but the Queen, she changed the menu or something, Nanny Lightbody, and, uh, from what the Queen had asked Charles to have. But that's not the case, I think. It was really the, the personality upset with clash. It, the personality clash with Philip, and he thought that Charles was being too spoiled mm-hmm. and being right. namby-pambied which, of course, he might well have been. Yeah. Speaking of Charles being namby-pambied, actually, obviously a lot of your book is that he's a wonderful person, he's a wonderful advocate for charities, but definitely can be quite demanding. I mean, there's a story about how he called the valet away from his dinner because he hadn't had his shirt unbuttoned. If there was, like, little pebbles from the gravel outside his house, he would tell off the house caretaker. I mean... He's definitely a prince, for sure. He's definitely a prince. I mean, I remember, <laughs> this is a, a long time ago, actually, that I was at Highgrove with him, and I thought, oh, I was invited, and I thought, oh, it might be a little group of us, mm-hmm. but it was just me. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was amazing. And yeah. I, it was really, and he actually said to me, I'm very impatient in what I do. When I get in the bath, I stick in my blazer. He put little post-it. Well, I imagine it was post-it notes, mm. those yellow notes. Yeah. yeah. Of course, they're not. It was some crested... with the Prince of Wales feathers a little sticky bit at the top and he'd say gravel on the front doormat and and all these little notes would be there clocks slow he would get very irritated because of course he's paying a lot of money to a lot of staff to keep things going and he's he was forgetful this was then so he's probably even more forgetful now so he wrote things down so that he could pass the message on would the valet then find them in his yes it's a valet's job to then pick them off and then say right the person that looks after the gravel in the driveway or and the clocks would be told, which actually seemed quite sensible. It does make him seem... I mean, he is very spoiled, but then you would be. It's a product of your upbringing, It's a pro- totally a product of your upbringing. And if you've always had people saying, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, your royal highness... Mm. I mean, I think that is a problem with the older members of the royal family is that they have this idea that they're better than anyone else. I don't think Charles has that... They're so used to having this sort of sycophantic behaviour and every time you tell a joke, everyone rolls with laughter. They have that expectation. So you think you're really funny. Absolutely. I mean, I think you kind of saw this at the coronation a little bit, you know, when he was like sat in the carriage (laughs) waiting for William and Kate to show up. Obviously when the pen didn't work or it was in the way, it's like definitely a need for everything to be very smooth I've got a a lovely story about when, uh, when Charles lost there was a footman who was a friend of mine was in the next door room and he heard Charles on the phone absolutely screaming 
he used to lose his temper and really scream. And then he'd just wipe the desk clear with one swipe of his hand and everything would go on the floor. And then he'd be incredibly apologetic. Oh, my, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he's a really gentle person. But he has got this sort of histrionic temper, which was something his grandfather had. Mm. They used to call them his Nashes. That's King George VI, mm. who used to just lose it. And it's sort of inherited. Well, Prince Philip was known for having the odd... And he, Prince Philip, tantrums. Yes, exactly. Taking us to where King Charles is now, he's 75. He has, as we know, had this incredibly long training. He's now in this role, just 17 months in, and he's been hit with this diagnosis. It's obviously not what anyone wanted or could have foreseen. How do you think he is going to manage this whole process with his heir, Prince William? I mean, we're told they're in constant contact. How much do you think William's going to step up at this point? Or do you think that the king has given him licence to do as much with his family as he can, while he still can? I'm of the opinion, but this is my opinion only, that the king has given him licence to be with his family. Because Charles was never allowed to be with his family. He was always doing his duty. And then he used to get criticised for it. So when, for instance, William was hit by a golf club Mm. and had to go to hospital, I mean, Charles, the headlines were just terrible. The prince that doesn't care. I mean, they were, no, much worse than that. And I think that sticks in Charles's mind, that he was really vilified Mm. for not spending more time with his children. And I just think that he said to William, look, it's fine, we can manage, spend this week with your wife and kids, and don't give it another thought. It's interesting, isn't it? Just for context for listeners, that was William was, what, at prep school at that point? William was at his prep school, Ludgrove, and he got hit by another boy accidentally with a golf club, and it fractured his skull. Mm. And it was quite serious, and he was rushed to a local hospital, and then he was taken up to Great Ormond Street and operated on, and it was quite a drama. And of course, I mean, Diana was obviously there and spent the night in the hospital at his side, but Charles had an engagement. So instead of cancelling it, because he didn't want to let 5,000 people down, it was a big thing, Mm. he went and he got so criticised. But Charles always put duty first because that's what his mother did. Mm -hmm. And that's what Diana decided she wouldn't do. And I think Charles has encouraged William to spend more time with the family and also said to William, I don't want you to take on any royal duties mm-hmm. until you absolutely have to. Because do you remember we criticised William the workshy? Yes, yeah. And that was his father very much saying, you know, you don't have to do this. Be with your young family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Enjoy it while you can. You've got years yeah. and years and years of royal duties to do. I wonder how much, and we'll never really know, that is influenced by his own childhood, knowing that his mother was... I think maybe this is a big influence from his childhood. He doesn't want the same thing to happen to his son. He wants William to be able to enjoy his wife and family as much as he's able to do so Mm -hmm. within the restrictions of what he's doing. Mm. It sounds like he tries to be as supportive as possible, which I think probably makes this fallout with Prince Harry all the worse at this stage of his life. What are your thoughts on it? I don't suppose Charles gives a huge amount of thought to it. Because what can he do? What can he do about Harry? He can only worry. And I think that he's so busy. He's got so many other things going on. 
And again, he's got that little bit of characteristic from the Queen. If they can't do anything about it, let's just move on, put it aside. I think he will just say, well, it will resolve itself in the fullness of time. There's an amazing ability, isn't there, in the family to compartmentalise? I think you have to compartmentalise. Otherwise, he'd be waking up at four in the morning like we all do, worrying about it. Mm. And there's nothing he can do. He will see his grandchildren eventually. And I think he thinks that Harry probably may or may not come round, but there's nothing he can do about that either. Mm. I think he just wants Harry to be happy because that's what we want of our children. Of course. I think it was a small step, wasn't it, for Harry to come and spend time with his father, however brief. So, well, we'll have to watch the space. I do think so brief. I I do think Charles will have thought... It's a bit ridiculous because, again, he's of that generation. I mean, you can't fly 11 hours. Think of your carbon footprint. And I know he was flu commercial. To come to London for one night just to see him for 45 minutes. For someone of his age, it just doesn't make sense. Mm. To to, to a younger generation, yes. But to someone of his age, he must have thought this is absolute madness. But it's very sweet of him. But it's completely crazy. Why didn't he wait? and come when he's got a bit more time. Surely it wasn't Harry's choice for it to only be 45 minutes, right? I mean, it would have been... Well, well he so would have known his father was going to Sandringham. Yeah, and also I think you do have to remember that even if the king is not out on manoeuvres in public, his day is planned down to the last minute, and that will include sort of calls from world leaders. I know for a fact last week he was receiving a lot of calls from people Mm. all over the world, you know, dealing with his official work behind the scenes and also recovering from his first bout of treatment. And my understanding is, and we we just, we touched on it last week, that he actually delayed his onward journey to Sandringham so he could spend some time with Harry. But it's not like you or I would go home and your parents might sort of drop their plans for the afternoon and go for a walk or whatever. I think it's just a very different operation. Yeah, I mean, he really does have his diary is every 20 minutes and, and has been since he came out of the Navy. Yeah. So he's used to that rigid timetable of life. Mm. And even with Camilla, there was something Camilla was doing a couple of years ago. He popped in, but he only literally popped in for about five minutes. Yeah. Because he'd obviously said, you know, darling, I'll support you. But he had, between appointments, five minutes. Mm. And you could feel that his day was very, very full. So, I mean, I suppose actually 45 minutes is quite a long time. So he's not going to drop it to humour Harry, basically. Well, can you imagine if you've got Joe Biden or someone lined up for a phone call, you can't just reschedule these things. Ingrid, it's an absolute delight to talk to you again. I can only really thoroughly recommend the book. It's a great read. There are loads of fantastic nuggets in there. So many things we haven't even touched on. I know. And I really love the historic detail as well about seeing how things have been done across different generations, how things are changing. The takeaway from it is that the king and his mother, the late Queen Elizabeth II, had their difficulties over the years in their relationship, but they sort of mellowed later in life and had this wonderful connection eventually. I really hope that we're going to see that from the younger generation as well. It gives a fascinating insight into the king and the family dynamics and would love to have you back to talk all things royal again sometime soon. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. So many amazing anecdotes in Ingrid's book. That was the typical. We didn't scratch the surface. We did not even scratch the surface with anecdotes. No, Ingrid has got so many stories to tell. We definitely need to get her back on at some point. I love hearing about the historic stuff in particular from her. You know, the fact that she used to hear things directly from Princess Diana 
Same, uh, yeah. That's same. in a way in a way that royal correspondents do not have access these days. It was a different time. It's fabulous. A lot of very, very good stories that we didn't, yeah, we didn't even touch on. So my mother and I, order yourself a copy, dear listeners. Yeah, it's, it's available uh, via Simon & Schuster and in your bookshops. Really fabulous read. So that is everything from Emily and myself this week. Thank you so much to you, Ingrid, for joining us for the chat and to you too for listening. We'll be back soon with our next episode. But in the meantime, please head over to listen to our alternative podcast The Daily Lowdown available on Apple Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts Bye Bye